inhabitants of this land upon upon which we live and work. Sorry. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, who are traditional owners and custodians of this land, upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past, present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of the First, of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. How is everybody today? Good morning. Um, yeah, all uh, we're all good. Um, just a bit chilly um, <laughs> coming here uh, on the way on the way to the studio. But um, yeah, I think the winter is really coming already, and I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the winter's always cold. It's always nippy, but it's good fun. Uh, f- press Freedom Day today, yeah. so very important day. Very uh, important day for all, all of us. us. As being fellow journalists, we yeah. all we all love reporting on big news stories and mm. breaking the big yarns. Yeah. What? Well, uh, Patrick, I know you've. Um, well, me and Grace, we're still students. Um, shortly, we're going to be graduating. But you've also had some real-life, real-world experiences in the industry. I was just wondering what it was like for you jumping um, from uni to um, working regionally in a newspaper. Well, it's a, it's a different aspect. Uh, for those you know listening along, I worked for a, what was called the News Local uh, tabloid, so for News Corp's uh, News Local, uh, which meant that you had an online platform and it was completely different to what we think of as a local country newspaper. Uh, mm. So there was more of an obsession of covering probably, you know, the scandal and the smut, as I like to call it. So crime uh, was something that was very important to talk about and that, that was beneficial uh, to the community in that aspect of giving people an idea. But it was a different... It changes things and you learn things on press freedom and understand that uh, those things are super important in, um, you know, giving people the voice and understanding. So there were stories where I covered that were quite interesting that probably would not got covered if, you know, we didn't have our press freedom that we have today. That's yeah, true. yeah. And, um, you know, speaking of press freedom, um, you know, while Australia, Australia does have, um, you know, a great amount of freedom of speech, we still have um, problems with uh, media monopoly and, a, you know, a, a huge number of papers, especially all of the regional papers being owned by... Yeah. Um, Murdoch. So and, yeah, it's a never-ending discussion regarding world press freedom because um, we never know what's going to happen to the media. Laws can change, things can change suddenly out of nowhere, and we just have to go with it. But you know, I think it's so important to continue trying and talking about it, just so we can keep standing up for journal- 
journalist rights. I was going to say as well, you know, uh, fellow 3CR listeners, I'll know what I'm talking about here, but we, uh, I do co-produce uh, the talkback show with Joe Toschiano. He's probably going to give it to me for the last name. Apologize. And, uh, and Pat, um, and we discuss, and we have um, Stephen from Marrickville. He calls in every week about Julian Assange and about the big issue that happens there. And uh, it was only last week I saw there was a big uh, demonstration supporting Julian Assange, which was great because it's important. Um, I think he's someone that's forgotten about in the media space, and what he did was quite uh, brave and uh, commendable. So, uh, Sonera, what is on for our today's show? Uh, well, coming up today, uh, we're going to theme our show around press freedom. We'll talk about press freedom here and around the world. Um, particularly, Patrick uh, will talk about press freedom and the future of regional media here in Australia. And Grace will speak to a Malaysian journalist about press freedom, uh, two Malaysian journalists actually, about press freedom in Malaysia. And I'll be talking about the Digital Security Act in Bangladesh and how it's muzzling journalists there. So yeah, and Claudia um, will um, speak later in the show, Claudia will speak to, um, you know, about single mothers and uh, the C- she's speaking to the CEO of the Council of Single Mothers and their children about upcoming budget hopes. So stay tuned for that later in the show. And yeah, on to our news headlines today. What do you guys have for us? Well, firstly, um, on this Wednesday, Tasmania will be granted the 19th AFL team licence after being unanimously endorsed by the existing 18 football clubs. The AFL Commission uh, met on Tuesday evening to complete the final set of ratifying the licence, after which outgoing Chief Executive Gillan McLaughlin released a short statement saying, See you in Tassie tomorrow. Uh, It has come with some criticism, with opponents arguing that the Tasmanian State Government and the Federal Government should be focusing on current housing and health health crisis. Excuse me. Uh, The State Government will contribute uh, $12 million a year over 12 years towards the team, uh, plus another $60 million for a high-performance centre and also $375 million for a 23,000-seat roof stadium at Macquarie Point in Tasmania. Now over to Grace. On on the Monday of May Day demonstrations um, all the way to France, there were over 800,000 French workers that took to the streets in Paris and they protest against the government's decision to raise the retirement legal age from 62 to 64, following President Emmanuel Macron's push through last month. This led to the biggest political threat towards the French president's second term. The country's labour unions have come together to form a united front for the May Day demonstrations, despite being divided for over a decade. Despite Monday's marked as the 13th day of protest since January, President Macron has refused to yield on the pension changes, which is set to come to force this September. Now going on to Sonera. Yes, and radical changes are in store for smokers with the Federal Health Minister announcing a 5% per year increase in the tobacco tax for the next three years to be introduced from September. The tax increase is consistent with the World Health Organization's advice that significantly 
increasing tobacco excise taxes and prices is the single most effective and cost-effective measure for reducing tobacco use. The announcement follows the government's decision to ban the importation, the importation of non-prescription vapes in order to in order uh, in an effort to crack down on recreational vape use especially by australia's youth single use disp disposable vapes will be banned as sales in re uh, will be banned in sales in retail outlets restrictions on packing flavoring uh, on packing flavoring nicotine levels and other ingredients will also be introduced and that's all of our headlines for today uh, we'll be back after a short break. You're listening to 855 AM. Worried about the climate crisis but not sure how to help? Whether you want to make your voice heard in our democracy, help out with local sustainability projects or hit the streets to protest for change, Climate Carnival has something for everyone. This two-day festival is your chance to meet a range of local climate and environment groups, get the facts on climate crisis, and find out what you can do to make a difference. There'll be talks and workshops, music, comedy, kids' activities, and more. So come to Mycelium Studios in Brunswick East on Saturday 6th and Sunday 7th of May. Make some new friends and find your place in the movement. For more information, look up Climate Carnival on Facebook. Climate Carnival is a 3CR supporter. The Uruk Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Thursday, April 27 to Friday, May 12, Uruk is holding public hearings to question Victorian government ministers, senior bureaucrats and Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police about injustice against First Peoples in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at urukjusticecommission.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And you are listening to 855am on your dial or on digital radio. You can also find us on the podcast afterwards, after the show. Uh, earlier, I was speaking to Region Media Editor Chris Rowe. Uh, we discuss about press freedom and the future of regional media across Australia and also the complexity of being an editor in uh, the lovely New South Wales town of Wagga. Well, I am now speaking to the editor of Region Riverina Media and Regional Media, Chris Rowe. Chris, welcome. G'day, Patrick. Thanks for having me. All good, Chris. And Chris, you are a editor of Region Riverina. Just firstly, give me an idea of uh, what you do uh, down up in New South up in New South Wales. Yeah, well, we're a, a digital publication based in Wagga. Um, we've been here for about 12 months now, and uh, we focus on daily news, um, you know, all the usual stuff, but with a real emphasis on community stories and telling the stories of local people, celebrating local business and local achievement, and I guess trying to reflect the community back to itself in a positive way. Yeah, that sounds uh, very interesting and really great to hear, Chris. It's today uh, is World Press Freedom Day. Um, what do you think of you know, what do you think of the fundamental principles of press freedom? 
Well, I think it's empowering people to have a voice. So I think media is very important to, um, as I said, on one level to reflect a community back to itself, but also to broadcast to a wider community. And I think specifically in my own experience, I spent time in West Papua, uh, which is a province of Indonesia, the other half of, uh, well, the half of the New Guinea island. And that is a place that's under heavy occupation and there is no press freedom. Um, in fact, no outside journalists are allowed into West Papua because there's a, a separatist movement there that's uh, fighting back against uh, the Indonesians and nobody knows about it. And why don't they know about it? Well, because there's no media. Um, they've got no voice and it is very hard to get stories out of West Papua and to... to I guess, raise their voices on a national level. So from my own experience, I guess that's something that I reflect on. Yeah, yeah, and just for those listening as well, we do um, have our own show on 3CR about West Papua, and that can be uh, listened, uh, I think they do both days, Tuesday and Thursday. So um, I think Well, there you go, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think they do a great show in terms of they look into the big issues in West Papua, Chris, as, as we know, it's an unknown part of the world. Yeah, no, an amazing place to visit, and a real privilege to um, to have spent spent time travelling through there. And um, I've got a lot of West Papuan friends. Yeah, what have been your challenges in covering stories stories in regional areas in the Riverina, for example, Chris? Give me an idea of that. Challenges. Um. I guess one of the challenges for covering stories in regional areas is that people are shy. Um, so bringing people out of their shell and, and getting you to, uh, getting them to talk to you and share their stories can be challenging at times. And I think some people don't recognise that they have a story. But I'm a firm believer that everybody's got a great yarn about their life and what they're doing. And um, it's funny when when we share stories. Just simple, everyday stories about people's experience and, and, and what they do in their lives. Those stories really resonate with the community. So I can spend hours working on a political yarn in the lead-up to the election that might only get a couple of hundred people read it. But then I might also stop in the street where there's a local busker um, performing a few of his local songs and do an interview, and that story will go bananas because people like hearing stories about people and meeting new people and um, so I think breaking that shyness can be a challenge sometimes um, but uh, the more we do it the more people get used to telling their stories and I guess recognising the, the positives that they have in their region and, and in their own lives as well. Yeah yeah I do feel like you know you give that personal story and the moment you name that busker and, and the likes Chris you get uh, a very fascinating viewpoint of oh, all these people, oh, I know that person, I know that person, I can tell you a story about that person, and it, ga it gives a more uh, interesting aspect to the whole thing. And a town like Wagga, for example, they're going to give you um, so much so much more in terms of those interesting, quirky stories, which I think people love reading. Yeah, I think that's uh, the nicest bit of feedback that I've, that I've had since being here. Somebody said... I like your website. Every time I open it up, I wonder, who am I going to meet today? And I thought, oh, that's that's nice. That's what we aspire to. Yeah, that's, that sounds great, Chris. And in terms of you being the editor as well, how, how do you go about, you know, creativity in your stories? Do you do you allow your journalists to, to just pitch a yarn and you go, okay, let, you know, with your guidance, do you let them go on and find that story that you might have not thought of? Yeah, absolutely. It's about... Um 
elevating and empowering our journalists to find their own stories and to, uh, as I said, see stories everywhere. You know, if you stop in for a cafe and you're having a conversation and it's interesting, there might be a story there, you know. Uh, uh, my brother used the expression ABC. He's also a journalist, but uh, says it stands for always be contenting, which can be a blessing and a curse because you are always listening out for stories. You come across some amazing yarns, but then at the same time, it can be a little hard to switch off when you're at a party or something like that and you're, uh, and you're clocking some great story ideas while you're supposed to be unwinding. Yeah, that's, that's something they can always find uh, in the world of journalism is you never switch off. You hear a conversation over something and it, you, you find yourself going, oh, I can do a story on this. And you get to Monday morning and, uh, you, you know, Chris, for myself, even like Monday morning, and I'm like, oh, I went to the pub on Saturday night and speaking to the boys, they said this and you pitch it to the editor and the editor goes, mate, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, so it's always the way when it comes to that, Chris. Professionally uh, curious. Yes, yes, that's the best way. Chris, in terms of uh, where do you see the future of regional media? You know, it's interesting uh, to see what's that like from your perspective, you know, being an online, only an online um, group and uh, free as well. So you've got a better access to, the, you know, the otherwise, you know, heavily subscribed or uh, paid content that we come across with News Corp or uh, with ATM. It's a really interesting time in media because traditional media is dying, um, as, as we all know, but at the same time, the demand for content has never been so great. So uh, I guess something that region media is trying to do is step into that space and do online well because that's where the audiences are. So there, there is still a role for traditional newspapers. But, of course, that audience is dwindling and quite literally dying out. So we're focusing all our attention on uh, building good digital platforms, um, whether that's through the website, through direct email mail-out, through social media, or through an app that, that Region Media will be launching soon. But it's, it's trying to meet people where they're at and make it as easy as possible to access content. And you mentioned the subscriptions. Um, that's not a positive user experience. We all know when you click on a, a limited story sometimes and it gives you that pop-up window and blocks you from reading the story about your auntie's birthday party or whatever it is that you will, you just want to read that one story and you can't and you've got to sign up for $10 a month. It's not a good user experience, you know, and it's uh, you feel a little bit cheated. So one thing that we try and do is, is not have those subscriptions. So we, we will never have a paywall um, and we... we use, a, I guess, a more sideways way of, of funding our business and partnering with local organisations. Yeah. Yeah, and when it comes to those local local organisations, do you also, um, you know, we've seen with local newspapers, Chris, and you know this quite well, is, uh, you know, that feeling of, oh, am I able to report on something that could be negative to that local business or, you know, organisation? Do you feel restricted in that sense or do you kind of... Um, just go with the flow of what you what you've got in front of you. That's always a tough one, isn't it? With uh, with commercial media in particular, because you are beholden to your sponsors to some extent. But that's why it's important that the business, and the editorial, are always kept entirely separate. I guess the only place that it would influence us is, for example, if a local club was one of our sponsors. We were doing a story on gambling. It, it, would we would look to ensure that we had their perspective included in the story. Now, that doesn't mean that we would slant our story, but we would make sure that they had a voice in that. I guess 
that is where I would see that obligation. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And that's the best way of putting it, as good journalists do. Make sure you get both sides of the yarn because it's it's key to the it's key to the whole perspective of everything. In terms, Chris, and just finally, my last question is where what what's your thinking of the future for region media? What do you think you'll grow into in the in the in the years to come? Well, it'll be interesting to see. We're a very new organisation. A region started out of Canberra with a publication called The Right Act that they took over about six or seven years ago. And the plan is to continue to expand on a digital platform, no paywalls as far as we can possibly go. And uh, Wagga was the first step outside of Canberra. Um, We've now got um, region Illawarra um, and we're looking at uh, other locations to start launching that platform when we get an app up and running. The idea would be that as you travel around Australia, you've got your region app and it would geolocate stories to wherever you are and, of course, tailor them to your interests and all of that. So, hey, we hope to, we hope to be everywhere. Uh, local everywhere is our, is our slogan. So um, that's the idea of being hyper-local in as many communities around Australia as we possibly can and just telling those everyday human stories and reflecting the community back to listeners can go off and uh, read your great articles, Chris. Yeah, just check them out online. We've got uh, just the website, I suppose, Region Riverina, or more broadly, if you look for Region Media, you'll find us. And, um, yeah, check them out, learn a bit about the region and uh, meet some of the locals. Perfect, Chris. Thanks very much for, Thanks very much for coming on uh, 3CR Breakfast. A pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. And you are on 855am. That was Chris Rowe there, the editor for Region Riverina Media. Uh, if you want to hear or read about Chris's work, uh, you can go to regionriverina.com.au or to their uh, subsidiary website called aboutregional.com.au. Uh, now we're going to a song titled Settle Down. Boom, ba, boom, ba. Boom, ba, boom, ba. Boom, boom, ba, boom, 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 boom,
That was settled down by Kimbra. You're listening to TCR 855 AM. So um, we were speaking about the future of media with Patrick just now. And now we're going to head into a bit more of international current affairs of press freedom all the way from my home country, uh, Malaysia. So I spoke to Malaysia journalist Alia Ajiri and Malaysian-based social commentator, researcher, writer, and who also is a journalist and co-founder of Iman Research, Dina Zaman, about our country's press freedom and how race, religion and royalty, also known as the three R's, affect Malaysia's democracy and society. We're going to first look, listen to Alia Ajri, who is a um, Malaysian journalist of Malaysia Kini, one of Malaysia's journalism platforms. And she'll be, we'll, we'll take a listen to her talking about the general issues of press freedom in Malaysia. Let's take a listen. Hi, Ale. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. With, with Press Freedom in Malaysia, obviously you're with good knowledge regarding this. So generally, what are the main issues uh, surrounding press freedom in Malaysia? Wow. I guess I have to start by saying I'm not an expert. Um, I've just been working in the industry. Uh, I graduated um, with a mass communication degrees in journalism here in Malaysia. And I've been working since 2009, basically ever since I graduated. So my experience is strictly based on um, my work. And over the years, the issues have been pretty much the same. Mm. So we have seen moments where um, restrictions were imposed uh, more harshly against like certain media outlets and then there have over the years particularly in I would say this like three four 
years, mm. there have been a more active uh, move to fight against the existing restrictions. It would be one um, basic uh, journalist rights to carry out our duties in a safe uh, manner and free manner. Mm. Um, and um, related to that, uh, we do not have uh, much protection in terms of our basic safety, both uh, physical safety and uh, in recent years, we discovered um, there are a lot of like digital threats as well. Um, you know, as more media move um, towards uh, online platforms, so that exposes journalists to new threats that perhaps were not around, you know, like a decade ago or so. Mm. And then um, there are issues surrounding uh, legislations restrictions mm. imposed by legislations, some which have been in place since forever ago, like the Printing Presses and Publications Act, which to this day still requires any company or individual who uh, wishes to print. This is a general because like, under the law, it's like a longer list of things. Mm. But basically, it requires uh, any publisher to obtain a permit from the Home Ministry before they are allowed to uh, publish any printed uh, publications. So where previously uh, this permit would be uh, required to be renewed annually, um, I don't remember what year it was that annual requirement was changed to a one-off thing. That means once you have it, you have it and the government can still revoke or suspend but you're not required to submit uh, your applications to renew annually. Um, and then very recently in the past few months or so, mm. um, there has been, I wouldn't say like a crackdown, but there has mm. been a focus on um, preventing or acting against um content or any statements that are deemed to have been go to have gone against um the three we we say it as the three r elements mm -hmm. uh, religion royalty and race yes so discussions that touches on these three r issues uh that you know deem that can be deemed to be like inflammatory or inciting or things like that that is, um, well, dangerous-ish waters to tread on kind of thing. Mm. So we'll be very careful when dealing with, you know, those kind of subjects. And that was Malaysian journalist Alia Ahadri speaking about the general issues of press freedom in Malaysia. And towards the end, Alia spoke a bit about the three R's, which stands for race, religion and royalty. And that has been a recent discussion about how this has been affecting press freedom and also a bit of Malaysian society. So we're going to listen to Malaysian-based uh, social commentator, researcher, writer, and also the co-founder of Iman Research, Dina Zaman, speaking about how the three R's affect Malaysia's democracy and society. All right, so hi, Dina, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, good. So um, before we get into a bit of like the whole talking about the freedom of speech and democracy with um, 
the three R's in Malaysia. Could you just give a right. bit of context about the political discourse in Malaysia? That is a lot to unpack, Greece. Mm. I think since the last general elections, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a day when we don't have any political dramas. Lah. Some are laughable, some you can ignore, but for many, many things, we have to look and observe because it does impact Malaysia. Mm. So I think we are, I don't want to say that we're in a new Malaysia. We seem to be having a new Malaysia every time the government changes. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that we are facing a very strange Malaysia where Islamist politics, which have always been in Malaysia, yeah, they've always been there. But right now, mm. they are being mainstreamed uh, and we need to see the impact of this on the average Malaysian life. Mm. Uh, you know, for the machi-machi, auntie-auntie, uncle-uncle who are just trying to get by with their lives. So how will these changes actually impact what they do, what they believe in, and how they conduct their work? So in relation with this, could you explain a bit more about the three R's? The, you mean the religion, race, and royalty, lah, yeah? Yes. So this is something I've heard since I was young, okay, mm-hmm. Grace, and I'm very old now. But... Uh, it's something that we've always been taught from before. These are the three issues that you can never, never talk about in the public sphere, mm. public space, Malaysia, right? Mm-hmm. And you can get into trouble if you do. Now, you're talking about maybe 10, 20 years ago. You see now that when it is obviously very blatant, you will see the police, MCMC, all coming in and say, you know, you shouldn't be saying this. We're going to take action against you. Mm. Having said that, and I'm sure you read all the reports where people do get into trouble for attacking the royals, race and religion, yeah? Mm. But you also see a very, very lively discourse on social media where, okay, especially during 2020, remember during COVID? Mm-hmm. Where Malaysians were attacking the royals openly, criticizing them. Uh, Malaysians were also attacking uh, race relations. There were very uh, a lot of xenophobic comments, they were attacking each other, but it's become more and more open now. So the rise of hate speech or anger, right, in mm. the public space, is becoming the norm. If before we kept it, right, we wouldn't talk about it, we'd go for all these NGO talks and we'd talk. Now, I think especially the younger generation or people who are very technologically savvy, mm. they're expressing how they feel. Mm. Having said that, it's not without... Uh, a lot of criticisms, yeah? Where I wrote one thing recently and some people didn't like it and said, as a Malay, you shouldn't be talking about this. And you go, but these are things that that are impacting Malays also, not just non-Malays. Everyone's impacted by this. Mm. So you will have some people who will disagree with you on that, but I think that you need to bring out these discussions. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. But then, isn't there this, don't we all have this fear? Well, because freedom of speech is also very, I would, it's not, not, I would say not really constricted, but it's also quite like threatened in Malaysia when it, if we, if we dare think, to talk about things regarding the three R's. I think it depends on how. It, of course, there's a fear. There's fear everywhere in Malaysia. Mm. But I think it's how you approach things, all right? Mm. You approach things and say that, Okay, this is how it should be. Now, how are we going to have this discussion, this discourse? How do we get to debate and be angry with each other? There are ways of doing things. If it's a direct attack where it's very nonsensical, very angry, and it hurts 
communities. And of course, these are things that, you know, you have to talk and say, look, why are you so angry? This is really mm. not right about what you said about a certain community. But I believe researchers like you, you know, we've got a lot of journalists, intellectuals who are actually bringing things out and they haven't been in trouble yet simply because of the way, you know, they write or express. Having said that, Grace, it doesn't mean that we're in the clear. Lah. I mean, there's not a day when you don't think like, okay, when we do all, all these reports, are we going to get into trouble? But there's a risk that you have to take. Mm, I see, definitely. And with with this three us, do you think this is the government's way of censoring, not just the media, but a way to influence a certain kind of mindset for our Malaysians? I think, I believe so. But it's always been there, Grace. Like from before, you know, I was taught in school, you can't think this, you can't do that, you can't say this. Mm. Why? Because we told you so. If not, you're going to get into trouble. But I think one thing social media has done, and including internet, right? Mm -hmm. It has forced all of us, including governments all around the world, yeah? Mm. To address these issues and say, look, people are not happy. People are discussing this. How do we, if not collaborate, how do we de- talk to each other? We don't have to agree with each other, but we need to bring this out in the open. So in that sense that, yeah, there is some sense of wanting to, you know, influence us. Mm. But I think social media has democratized many, many things. So people are realizing, wow, this one, if you don't need, they'll go to the internet and talk about this. So it's a, I don't know, it's not a catch-22 situation. It is what it is now. So we are living in a new world order where, of course, sometimes I think, Ayo, that shouldn't be out, you know, that shouldn't be in a newspaper. Hmm. But it, things have changed. The internet has basically flattened everything. So, yeah, the three R's are not as taboo as before. Hmm. It may rankle a lot of people. It may upset a lot of people, but the fact is Malaysians themselves are talking about it. Just go to all these Instagram pages, you know, or even TikTok. You see the comments and you go, okay, people are angry. Mm, that's true. Mm-hmm. But then, um, would you say there's an improvement um, in this current era already because of technology? Mm-hmm. Or is there, or I because there's more the government hate. has a, sorry, uh, could you go ahead? I think there's more hate expressed mm. out. But how I look at this, at it is this, you know? Mm. Uh, I think it's this. There's a lot more anger. There's a lot more uh, knee. But I, when I look at research and all this, like, what you see, right? Is this anger fueled by hate? Or is it just someone going, ah, blah, 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 and all that, <sighs> you know? Because we've been repressed so long, you know, uh, Grace, mm. that we simpan, simpan, simpan. And then we have no outlet to verbalize, right? Mm. So when I look at these attacks, I say, of course, some of the things that that said is really terrible. You're like, how you? How can you go think or see such things? Mm. But I also want to see, like, where is this coming from? This anger? Is it because you're just an idiot? You just want to wag people, or is there a concern that we need to, you know, to 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 pay attention to? Mm. Mm. I see. So. With with the three R's, is that do you think that's a do you think that's a way to change the mindset of the older generation? Even though this is currently more, I would say, of a thing for the the newer generation to look at. That is, yes, mm. I think there's a way to talk to the older generation. Mm. Now I've been scolded. It doesn't matter what race, but I think if you say, look, 
I know you're angry. Okay? Mm. Mm. I acknowledge your anger. But these are the things that we have to look at. Now what? How do we move from here? You can scold us. You shouldn't talk about race. You shouldn't talk that. Okay, but the problem is we have this. We have these issues. If we don't talk about these issues, your choo-choo, your children, and God knows, right? Mm. Will not be able to live. True. And I think, again, when I talk to... I mean, we have to do a lot of negotiations, talking lah. I mean, mm. I have seen forums where someone just bantai here, left, right, and you're like, ayo, this is not going to help. So, let's talk about this. We have to be angry. We can be angry. But how do we make this posi- a positive experience for all of us? Mm, I see. And then going yeah. go, going into our final question, um, mm-hmm. how do you think Malaysia's democracy will be able to, I would say, become better with now that talks are... The talks on the three R's are come. Uh, I would say coming out. I think there's a lot of maneuvering, lah, a lot of advocacy to be done, mm. because we, thanks to the green wave, we have a new bunch of people who are making sure the presence is known, right? Mm. I don't think we should attack them or consider them as enemies, but again, let's meet and say, look, these are things we have to talk about, right? Mm. I mean, basically, politicians are politicians, lah. Political parties are political parties. But whatever they do is going to impact Malaysia. Uh, if you're going to go this route, it may not work out very well for all of us. So I think that we're in a very strange place where, you know, I, I'll be honest, Grace, I belong to a few WhatsApp groups, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone's concerned with how the new Malaysia is. Mm. My point is this. I said, all right, like, you don't like this, this group, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't you go in? Oh, no, no, these people are like this. I say, how do you know? Maybe if you talk over Tetare, they hate you, you hate them. But as long as you talk, mm. maybe something may just happen. Or maybe they hate you. But maybe one year down the road, one month down the road, they actually say, actually, yeah, they made sense. Mm. I don't think in general, Malaysians, right, overall, want to destroy this country. They love this country. Mm. It's not just about the good food, okay? This is a beautiful country we live in. Mm. But we cannot let this be hijacked by political parties or politicians. Now, I think Malaysians should stop depending on the government so much and say, okay, like, we had enough of you. Now, this is what we should do. And you shouldn't be depending on NGOs. Well, I, I thank you so much, Dina. Um, no, thank you. Thank okay? you. No problem. It's such an honour to have you here. And that was Malaysian-based social commentator and researcher, writer, and also the co-founder of Iman Research, Dina Zaman, giving us insight on the political discourse in Malaysia and how race, religion, and royalty affects democracy and society. So now that we have a bit of gist of what the three R's have um, affect democracy and society in giving understanding a bit of the political discourse as well, let's listen back as well, uh, to Malaysian journalist Alia Ahadri, who is going to be speaking about the press freedom in relation to is how is it being affected with these three R's? And also, yeah. and so how has this affected Malaysian media over the past years because of these three R's? I guess, I guess it really depends on what are we reporting on, right? Mm. Uh, for the most part, when we report on the royalties, it's mostly on, it's just like on what they say their decree, you know, all the official ceremonies, all the official things. Um, so obviously that's not an issue, right? 
Mm-hmm. You know, the media is invited to the palace to attend all kinds of things. And yeah. you have all these celebrations and all that. So that's nothing. But the difficult part would be when uh, reporting on the royalty's involvement in things that people might question why they're involved in such things. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, land development, land ownership, property or when uh, the royalty starts talking about religion, which is like under their purview. Mm. So while we can, um, while we, and by we, I mean like the media, the reporters, editors, mm. we may be aware of how to report on such issues in a manner that, you know, would not be deemed, I don't know, instigating or inciting or whatever. But especially with like online media the problem is often with the comments with mm. the public comments mm. so you know that is like really a line that we have to negotiate every day like you know what comments can be published what comments can be not published should we remove and things like that but on the other hand if we don't then we might well end up in trouble most media publications are when dealing, when reporting on such, I would say, quote-unquote, sensitive issues, hmm. uh, we would know, like, how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, like, elements outside of our control which we need to negotiate. I see. Yeah, so that's a challenge. <laughs> yes, I see. And, yeah. yeah. The it's a risk, la. It's a risk. We have yeah, to, it's a risk. correct, we have to decide whether we want to take the risk or not. And mm. that's... Uh, yeah, that's something that's always up for discussion. Um, so, Alia, you also are part of this um, media campaign called Hashtag um, MY Media Matters. So could you share a, bit of, yep. share a bit of what this project is about? As far as I can recall, <laughs> because this project, I think, started in 2020. Mm. And mm. then uh, my organization, Gerakan Media Merdeka Ogaram, was approached by the International Federation of Journalists as the umbrella body for... Uh, journalist unions, mm-hmm. including the National Union of Journalists Malaysia. Um, and it mm. basically talked about um, why, uh, what being a journalist means in, their, in our respective countries mm. and the challenges that we face and why uh, strengthening the media is important for the public at large. I see. So what was your your point and your focus in this project? Basically, when, you know, I was asked, what does it mean to be a journalist in Malaysia? Mm. I said, as, you know, we discussed um, about how at times there could be like discriminatory practices by the government, Mm. which is biased against certain media outlets. And we have seen that happen across the board, across like several different uh, federal administrations. It's just the subject, the the target media target uh, changes, but you know it still happens. Uh, and since then, until now, we have seen progress in um, the calls to to amend, if not repeal, um, these uh, archaic legislations. Mm. And the main goal, which I hope, I really hope that we are like moving very very close to achieving, is uh, to have an independent. Media Council in Malaysia. Mm. This, uh, we believe, is a step, the right step uh, towards promoting 
self-legislation mm. of the mm. media because only then can uh, the media be truly independent. So uh, Malaysia is quite a little bit behind in mm. terms of you know press freedom, even though if we see like the uh, annual RSF uh, rankings, the rankings might show that Malaysia is higher than you know some of our neighboring countries. But mm. uh, we have yet to have the uh, basic mm. elements that make up a uh, free press. Uh. I see. And, you know, we hope that under the present uh, administration, uh, the minister in charge have hinted at some positive developments. They uh, The government have said that the uh, Malaysian Media Council bill is in the final stages of being reviewed uh, before being tabled uh, to the cabinet. And once it, uh, once or if it receives uh, cabinet approval, uh, only then can it be brought uh, to parliament to be tabled. Mm. And we are hoping that would happen in the next uh, parliament session starting end of this month, end of May. I see. Um, I, uh, thank you so much for com- uh, sharing with us your thoughts on Malaysia's press freedom today. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thank you. That was Malaysian journalist Alia Ahadri. And we also listened um, just now as well to co-founder of Iman Research uh, and social commentator Dina Zaman speaking about country, our country's press freedom and how race, religion and royalty, known as the three R's, affect Malaysia's democracy and society. Alia is part of an ongoing project um, hashed, called Hashtag MY Media Matters. Uh, it's a campaign supported by the European Union that's talking about the challenges and what is it like being a journalist as well as a bit of a media issues in Malaysia. The campaign has been ongoing from 2020, but it will also go on until 2024 with other regions and countries around the world. Um, we're going to be taking a bit of a short break, so stay tuned. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Hello everyone. Welcome back to Breakfast. I hope you've been enjoying our Press Freedom special so far. Now, moving on to Press Freedom in Bangladesh, which is where I was born and spent a short time a few years in. And, you know, while we have our own problems with media monopoly, as there is a high concentration of newspapers owned by Murdoch, press freedom and freedom of speech is an issue affecting the world to in uh, uh, two different extents. And things are more dire for journalists across the sea in Bangladesh and 
could continue to be so. The country's political direction is heading towards fascism, as freedom of speech is threatened and citizens feel that they are constantly under surveillance and unable to speak their minds under Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina's Awami League party. And in 2018, Hasina's government passed the Digital Security Act. This act allows the police to detain anyone if they see anything that spreads racism, religious discrimination, extremism and terrorist propaganda through social media, print media or any other electronic media. While the government claims that the Digital Security Act is protecting citizens from such things, the clauses in the Act are vague enough for authorities to abuse their power and use it for a crackdown on critics or anyone that has said any, any or anyone that has said something that could be seen as critical or damaging to the government's reputation. Freedom of speech is in danger. Journalists are having a harder time trying to do their jobs and their livelihoods are at risk as violence against journalists goes unpunished. Bangladesh is currently 162 out of 180 countries on the World Press Freedom Index and their ranking has only declined under Prime Minister Hasina's term due to multiple instances of reporters being arrested and thrown in jail, beaten and threatened, all for, all for breaching the Digital Security Act. Data from the Center for Government data from the Center for Governance Studies has broken down the demographics that were targeted by the Act from 2020 to 2021. According to the data, 700, uh, where 754 cases were analysed, 25.6% of those arrested were confirmed to be journalists, which means that there were over 170 journalists detained under the Digital Security Act in one year alone. One of the more recent cases of injustice to journalists under the Act was in March, when reporter Shamsu Zaman Shams from Protomalo, one of Bangladesh's leading newspapers, was arrested without a warrant by eight police officers. He was dragged out of bed at four o'clock in the morning, out of his home in Dhaka, and his laptop, phone and hard drives were confiscated. By the next morning, he was sent to jail. You might wonder, what did he do to get such treatment? It was because he had breached the Digital Security Act by writing about soaring food prices and its effect on lower-class citizens in the area. According to authorities, he misrepresented facts and created discontent. And just a few days before this incident, investigative journalist who was working with Al Jazeera, his name is Zulkarnain Serkan, and his brother, uh, he and his brother were beaten by four men with iron rods for investigating corruption amongst high-ranking government officials. But one of the most brutal cases under the Digital Security Act was with writer Mushtaq Ahmed, who died in February 2021. After spending nine months in jail and allegedly being tortured there, 
Ahmed wrote about his dissatisfaction with the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic on social media in 2020 and was soon charged with tarnishing the country's image by spreading rumours under the Digital Security Act. Many have spoken critically about the, overseas, uh, about the act overseas, including UN Human Rights Chief Volker Turk, who called, who called on Bangladesh to sus suspend the act. Despite protesters and demonstrate, uh, despite protesting and demonstrations out in the streets of Bangladesh over the years, journalists are only getting more scared for their safety and their family's safety. Some have left the country, and those that remain are trying to avoid reporting on sens sensitive topics. Ali Riaz is a professor of politics at Illinois State University and he says that journalists can no longer do their reporting based on uncovering the truth, as their priorities now lay on staying alive after pu publishing their writing. All in all, it tells, us en it tells us enough about Bangladesh's decline in democracy and how muzzling journalists makes it easier for authoritarian regimes to function. Thanks everyone for listening to that. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast on the 3rd of May, which is World Press Freedom Day. We'll include some more information about this topic in our show notes, and we'll be right back after a break, but stay tuned. The Uruk Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Thursday, April 27 to Friday, May 12, Uruk is holding public hearings to question Victorian government ministers, senior bureaucrats and Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police about injustice against First Peoples in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at yurukjusticecommission.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. So Sanera talked a bit about um, the digital security in Bangladesh just now, and I think that was really interesting. And also it just really shows how much the world needs to hear about things that happened outside of Australia. And it is just, and as as we could tell just now, Sonara, right, there was, it's a very dire situation over there. Mm, yeah, um, uh, personally, one of my relatives also works at a newspaper there. And yeah, there is not just, uh, th you know, threats, you know, directly from the government on this act, but there are, you know, threats from uh, organizations that the papers may be sponsored by that are also linked to the government. And, um, you know, if you say anything that may even seem critical about, you know, that kind of industry, the industry that those companies represent, um, then, uh, you know, they directly threaten the journalists and their families, um, you know, by taking away um, certain rights. And, you know, there's no legal protections against journalists in Bangladesh um, either. So it's just very difficult. Um, and it seems like, you know, things are kind of heading for like a darker turn as mm. the election mm. comes up as well. 
I was going to say, you know, imagine if that happened in Australia and we were wanting to, you know, ask questions about, you know, the former coalition government and, and their scandals. Imagine if those journalists were under the same persecution. It would be pretty scary. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, speaking of um, persecution, um, you know, you know, it does happen in this in this country. It's just um, a bit more subtle, and um, you know, you can go from things like you know um, the prime minister or you know premier not not bringing um, media with them when they do conferences, and um, it can be as extreme as um, the situation with Julian Assange at the moment where he is um, yeah, being imprisoned for um, leaking, uh, for, you know, dropping those leaks in WikiLeaks. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I, yeah I, I think, like, looking at how certain press freedoms, we, might, we, we see that, we, we think that press freedom in us, our own countries already are as dire as it is, or maybe it's not, it's, it's not. It's not. It's not. Not any good. But like at the same time, look at. We also. We also have to remember other countries have it. Have it worse. And I think what's most important at the moment is to just continue fighting and advocating for press freedom because it's without without the press, you know, you won't know the news of the world. You won't know what's happened. And if there's no if there's no broadcast, if there's no radio, if there's no uh, print, pe- how would people know about? things that are so meant to be of public interest and public interest is so so important for media all around the world so yeah i think it's very important to continue to have this discussion and just a note on julian assange again um today at 11 o'clock in the u.s embassy in st kilda road uh in melbourne here um, there's going to be a rally and then another at 12 o'clock at La Trobe Street as, uh, at the Australian, Pre- uh, Australian Federal Police HQ. So, um, yeah, make sure if you can turn up to those as well because they're happening today. And also just um, another note... Actually, I was going to say something, but I... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now I remember. Um, it's uh, about press freedom here is that, you know, it's very important to support independent media like 3CR. Uh, we're very, um, you know, being independent, we're very um, free and lucky Radical. to uh, talk about these things without any issues. So, um, yeah, support us during our Radiothon as well. Yeah. And now we'll be going into a song. This is called Know Your Rights by Clash. This is a public service announcement with guitar.
Join the National Day of Action on May 13th to mark 75 years since the Nakba, also known as the catastrophe, when 80% of the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed from their homeland and over 530 Palestinian villages destroyed to create the State of Israel. Today, Palestinians on a daily basis are still resisting the loss of their homeland and human rights, insisting on their right of return and sharing their truth. Join them in their fight for justice and a free Palestine at 1 p.m. Saturday, May 13th at the State Library. That's 1 p.m. Saturday, 13th of May. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Worried about the climate crisis but not sure how to help? Whether you want to make your voice heard in our democracy, help out with local sustainability projects or hit the streets to protest for change, Climate Carnival has something for everyone. This two-day festival is your chance to meet a range of local climate and environment groups, get the facts on climate crisis and find out what you can do to make a difference. There'll be talks and workshops, music, comedy, kids' activities and more. So come to Mycelium Studios in Brunswick East on Saturday 6th and Sunday 7th of May. Make some new friends and find your place in the movement. For more information, look up Climate Carnival on Facebook. Climate Carnival is a 3CR supporter. FreeCR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. FreeCR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at FreeCR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. tuned into 3CR. It's Claudia joining the team in the studio now and we've been talking about press freedom this morning on International Press Freedom Day. We think of press freedom uh, not only in the terms of the rights of the journalists to share stories in the public interest but also the media organisations who publish those stories and as Sonera and Grace uh, we're saying we pride ourselves here at 3CR on being a platform where organisations and individuals working for and with grassroots communities can share their voices and experiences. It's a place where these voices are valued and communities build strength through belonging and solidarity. So we round off the show today with a conversation with an advocate for a group of women who are among the most vulnerable in the country. Jenny Davidson is the CEO of the Victorian Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, an organisation which provides essential support and assistance to women parenting alone. She joins me now in the lead up to the federal budget to explain the impact of government policy on this group of our society and the work the council is doing to bring change. And just a note that this segment may touch on some delicate subjects, including domestic violence, if you're not feeling in the space for this right now, you might wish to tune out for the next 15 minutes or so. Good morning, Jenny. It's wonderful to have you in the studio here at 3CR. 
Good morning, Claudia. It's great to be here. Yeah, Jenny and I finally meet. We've spoken a couple of times on uh, this program, but uh, lovely to have you in non-lockdown uh, <laughs> environment and uh, here face to face. So, Jenny, when we spoke the other day on the phone, you told me that your helpline is simply flooded by callers. Um, what are you hearing when you pick up the phone? What are the things that people are calling for help? Yeah, well, we have a support line. Um, people can ring an email and uh, we have the largest backlog we've ever seen. So we aren't even able to answer the phone. We're not the only service facing this because we deal with the calls and the order in which they come. So people ring and leave a message and we're ringing people back. And it's the financial crisis that's hitting families really hard. The thing we keep hearing over and over and over is housing issues, housing issues, people being forced out of their houses by, um, you know, issues like um, landlords moving in a family member um, or, you know, the housing is no longer affordable and then they can't get another rental or, you know, they can't afford the moving costs. They've managed to get a rental with it being hit up against the moving costs. There are people ringing who are just getting skips to throw out all of their belongings and move into their car. And when they get housing, they're going to have to repurchase things. It's, it's really awful. It's, it's, never, it's never been this bad before. And in the case of families, particularly families with children at school, you've got those... Um restrictions that you need to keep that stable uh, connection with your community and stay connected um, in your school zone, stay with your social support network. So it's not like you've got this huge choice of where you can go geographically either. It, it's often the case um, in when there's family breakup that the mother will try to stay in the area where the children have been living and where their networks are and it may not be affordable. So then you come up against either a long commute, moving your children's school, and but there's more, more and more families that simply... Um, Single mothers are moving more out to the urban fringes um, and the peri-urban areas. Um, uh, so you set places like um, Bacchus Marsh, which is just outside Melbourne. Uh, rents used to be cheaper, particularly before lockdown, and that's really been undermined by lockdown. But then you, you face more expensive transport and less jobs and more isolation. Mm. So it's it's really complicated. Um, and as we all know, you know, affordable housing just really barely exists. Most of our service users, regardless of how much poverty they're in, they're in the private rental market and they're trying to compete against two-income families to secure a rental. Mm. Yeah, I believe the housing ministers uh, are meeting today, but uh, we'll have to watch that space to uh, see what, what comes. Um, so turning to the federal budget uh, being announced next Tuesday, uh, there's obviously huge pressure on the government to look after the vulnerable in the community and there's talk of expanding the current policy affecting single parents. Can you briefly explain what the current policy provides and how long a parent is eligible to receive that support? Yes, I can. So when you are a single parent with a, when your youngest child is a, under eight, you're on parenting payments single. Um, the, the way that the policy is currently constructed is that when your younger child turns eight, you moved on to JobSeeker, which is about $100 less in income. And it also drops, it allows you to earn less before it drops. So it's actually, ironically, uh, less supportive of working. A lot of women will have a part-time job, but their government benefit is, uh, or their social security payment 
is the most reliable source of income and it provides a backup up because a lot of single mothers are forced into casual work by their parenting responsibilities. So their income could go up and down or they could be at home because raising your children is essential unpaid work. So when you get moved on to JobSeeker, it's an unemployment benefit. And these are not unemployed people. These are people doing unpaid work. So first of all, that's, that's you know, insulting. It doesn't recognise the gendered aspect of this. I mean, the reality is that... When you have shared care, there's a lot of single mothers out there with sole care. But when you have shared care, more often than not, the women have the Monday to Fridays and that's the working week. And that's when, you know, so there's an opportunity cost to women on so many levels, to having children who might have additional needs, they might be adjusting to life after family violence, um, you know. So there's lots of reasons why women may struggle to work at all or may only work a little bit and that government benefit is essential. But eight is too young. It, it makes the assumption that eight-year-olds are going to be fine at home by themselves where their mothers have to do long days at work or they're going to have 10-hour days with before and after school care where their mothers commute to work and work. And that's just, it's really, um, it's really difficult. And the reason it's eight is that was a change made by the Howard government, but the, um, but the families who were already on the program were grandfathered. They were left on parenting payment single, um, if they're already receiving it when that change made. And then Julia Gillard moved all those families that were still on parenting payment single, that were get, get, um, grandfathered, onto JobSeeker um, in early 2013. But that legislation was passed in October 2012 on the very day she made her misogyny speech. And 80,000 families were shifted with very short notice to about $100 less a week, which when your budget's really tight is a lot. And there's very clear data now that shows the poverty of those families right back to that change. It, it's, it's, you know, it's been done over ACOS and um, University of New South Wales a Poverty in Australia report from 2020 shows it very clearly on paper. Uh, so, and one third of single mother families are now in dire poverty. So we're talking 37% are below the poverty line. Those are the families that have to rely on government benefits. So this is what poverty looks like in terms of families and children um, and you've said that the links between the, the policy in terms of parenting supplement and this outcome is, is quite direct. Uh, I want to come to your campaign in a moment but before that I also wanted to just talk about another dimension of this policy debate and that is in relation to the report that came out last year into the prevalence and impact of domestic violence on single mothers. And a critical point was made there also in relation to government policy. So we've got the, the uh, situation of um, the, the policy putting mothers into and their children into policy. But then we also have government policy that on the one hand encourages women to leave violent relationships and therefore become single parent families. And on the other hand, we've got this parenting single payment policy and other welfare measures that mean as soon as they do that, they're really going to be living in poverty. Would you like to speak about this in terms of that inconsistency and the choices, how it affects the choices of mothers who are in abusive relationships and that decision of whether to stay or move into a situation where you're living in poverty. 
Uh, yeah, well, look, it was interesting. This research was done last year where Anne Summers got a grant to look at the ABS data. And we've known this anecdotally. And what the data showed is that 60% of single mother families have a history of family violence. So what's causing them to leave their partner is a violent situation. Um, and so they're trying to find a better better safety, a better life for their, for their children. But that step out of that family situation is into poverty and that poverty is what we're calling policy-induced poverty. In other words, it's coming from the government, um, the structures, the, the social security payments which they can access is not enough to feed yourself, feed your children, provide adequate housing, be able to, um, you know, have heating on in winter and cooling on in summer, let alone having kids do extracurricular activities or uh, forget family holidays. So, and there are women that are choosing to go back to violent relationships rather than face a situation where they have to sleep in a car with their children. And Anne Summers' report is called The Choice, and it's around the choice between violence or poverty. And let's be honest, this is not a choice that anybody should have to make. And we're talking about a very wealthy country, and it's it's just, you know, it's insufficient. Government hasn't been able to stop family violence yet, and okay, they're, they're interested and they're dedicated, but what they can stop is that dire choice about what happens to women when they leave. So this is really the government's choice. It is. So coming to uh, the current situation, uh, the Women's Economic Equality Task Force, which has actually been set up by the Albanese government to report on matters affecting women in the Australian economy, has just given the government its list of priorities for how the upcoming budget can improve women's economic equality in Australia. And the top priority listed by the task force was that the parenting payment single be restored for women with children over eight. Does that recommendation by the government's own task force give you faith that the government will do the right thing next week when the budget's delivered? There are indications there might be a partial increase to the age of 12. Um, what's your thinking there? Look, it's been a very interesting campaign and the Women's Economic um, Equity Task Force has been incredible. Sam Moyston has been a great advocate and Therese Edwards, who's the um, the CEO of the National Body, which is Single Mother Families Australia, has been doing amazing work. Um, all all um, working age pensions or payments need to raise and that's the Raise the Rate campaign. But this is a time right now where we're looking at gender in this country and how do we move women forward. One of the ways we do that is by recognising unpaid work. And where you see a concentration of, of unpaid work and all of these other gender factors is among single mother families. So, yes, we should be making this change. And this, the time is now. This is the best opportunity we've had in decades. We have a prime minister who was, who's proud to be the son of a single mother. And his mother would be so incredibly proud of him. Um, and he was raised in public housing on the disability support pension. And he says he's going to have no one left behind. And then we are saying, great, well, let's make this change. And now the government's backpedalling because what we want is for the um, legislation was changed by Howard and, and um, Julia Gillard to be restored, which is that single mothers with children where up to the youngest being 16 have access to parenting payments single. That doesn't mean they're going to sit there and stay at home with their kids. It means it's their backstop and it's enough to live on. And, and it doesn't have all the mutual obligations that Job Active does, which is, you know, hours and hours and hours of women's work. When you're talking about the poorest time, um, you know, the single mothers are the poorest time cohort. 
Um, but now the government's saying, well, maybe it'll be 14, and then they started saying 12. And so they're saying, all right, we're going we're gonna to help some families, but not others. Now, if we restore the um, access to women with children until their youngest turns 12 or 14, then, you know, 12 is right before kids start year seven with new, new, new school uniforms, new devices, or the one you have in primary school often isn't the one you need, textbooks. We provide um, emergency uh, financial aid around school costs and, you know, the secondary school costs are where it's concentrated. That's where we provide aid annually at the start of the year. Um, 14 is slightly better than 12. 16 itself is an ideal. I mean, we don't want to push kids out of school. What we want is these the kids of single mothers to finish school and to go on and to be the full citizens and the full people that they can be. And that means for the government that they go on and pay taxes. So why you'd want to discourage that? Because the trade-off is clear. You invest in these children's futures and then they go on and participate fully in our economy and our society. And maybe one or two of them end up prime minister, but they don't have to. You know, they just have to have the same opportunity as any other kid. So any of these shortfalls, yes, it'll be a step forward, um, but it will also mean that some families are still missing out. And it just delays that step into dire poverty that happens when your, your, your very minuscule income is cut by $100 a week. And I think the other point in all of this um, is that the payment we're talking about isn't huge anyway. So while we're sort of hoping that there'll be an increase in the length of time that that payment is available for uh, sole mothers, um, we're not talking about a huge amount of money. So we're already talking about a lifestyle that is financially stressful and having to think all the time about how money is divvied up and whether there's enough for this or that. Um, and the mental stress of that impacts the mother, but it also then uh, flows on to the child's experience. And if you're talking about 12 particularly, that sort of age where children are going into adolescence, they're moving from primary to high school, that's a recognised time of emotional upheaval for children. Um, we're in the middle of a mental health crisis. It, it seems bizarre that we're even talking um, about those those sort of ages. Absolutely. And children, you know, they, they hide excursion forms. They tell mum they don't want to go mm. on camp. They say to their mum that they're not hungry. You know, and then you're talking about teenagers. Teenagers eat more. They have to wear adult clothes. You know, the shoes cost more. There's so many more expenses for teenagers. They're not getting cheaper. And we can't expect... Um, you know, 14-year-olds to go out and get a job and contribute to the household income. That is not a fair expectation. They might get a job to cover their own costs, but a 14-year-old shouldn't have to pick up an adult responsibility like that. And if we're talking about trying to make people full citizens and feeling like they're part of a community and belonging, then feeling different and not having the things that your peers have is, you know, the first way to isolate a child. We know how sensitive teens are to mm. all of those issues. And, and, and it's, not, it's not having a, a, a single mother that causes intergenerational poverty. It's not the number or gender of your parents. It's the poverty that causes mm. intergenerational poverty. It's the missing out on opportunities. And it's also that the feeling that, um, that the system is against you. Mm. We're running out of time, but I've got two quick questions for you. Um, there's three independent MPs, Zoe Daniels, Kyla Tink, Monique Ryan and uh, 
So Zally Zegnall, Zegel, I think that's four, my counting is <laughs> not too good this morning, who have joined the campaigners in the call for the, the payment to be restored. Um, and then we have the Minister for Women, Katie Gallagher, who's also come out with her own personal experience of receiving the parenting supplement and saying what a difference it's made to her. Do you feel that having more women in government is actually influencing the attention on this issue at the moment? Look, the reality is that a swing back to a Labor government, while both sides of, of government have, have made legislation that's been dire for single mothers, it, it does provide an opportunity to talk about things like no one being left behind. Having more women allows us to open the gate to talk about how this is gendered, how you, when it's single mother families where you see the feminisation of poverty. So yes, they all need to learn and understand because let's be honest, most politicians come from privilege, um, but they're open to understanding the gendered lens. And finally, uh, you talked about Anthony Albanese. He has peddled the story of his own upbringing as a child of a single mother and he's, he says he understands what tough is. How do you think he'll be viewed by the single mother community and women more widely if he doesn't put actions behind his words? Yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that there will be a backlash because he did use that to humanise his story. It's a great story. Um, but also, you know, he was in public housing, which you can't get it anymore. And the um, benefit that his mother on was on the disability support pension, whatever it was called at the time, was a more livable benefit comparative to the cost of living. So the times have changed. And, uh, and so he has an opportunity to give children the same sort of opportunity he had. And I just really hope he, he steps up into that. And it hasn't just been a soapbox for him. Well, thanks very much for joining us this morning and we'll definitely be watching that space and reporting back next Wednesday on the outcome of that budget, fingers crossed, um, for uh, these mothers. That was Jenny Davidson, CEO of the Victorian Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, speaking about the campaign to restore the parenting single payment to the child's eighth birthday and beyond. We'll find out the outcomes of that campaign next week. And we've also got uh, the link to the campaign a pledge that the Single uh, Mothers and Their Children Council have organised. So I'll add that to the show notes. Um, there's a week to go. More voices, more messages is, is a good thing. Um, if anything in this uh, segment has been distressing, I'll just put the lifeline number out there. 131114 and I'll uh, pop all the details of how you can get in touch with the, the Council for Single Mothers and their children on our website for anyone that wants to join. I think we're out of time on our show today. Thanks to all our guests <clears throat> and I hope uh, some of the messages from Press Freedom have resonated with you in our audience. We'll see you next week.